and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, uh, we're going to head out this time up to Oslo, Norway for the first time. Kobus, we're adding new thumbtacks on the map of locations where we've got our <laughs> guests. Uh, and we're thrilled to have Francis Stevens-George join us on the show today, the first time uh, from Oslo, Norway, where he is a, an author, a scholar. He uh, also runs a website called Innovation Africa. Uh, he, but the reason why we're having him on the show today is because he's just published a brand new book, China and Africa, a Love Affair, that came out. It's available on Amazon. Uh, Francis, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for, for having me. Kobus, it's always the joy of talking to somebody in Scandinavia because the internet connections are just so good. <laughs> so for once, we have a nice, clear connection. So it's great to have you on the show, Francis. Today, what we're going to do is we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about the whole book, China and Africa, Love Affair, uh, even though I think it merits a discussion. But we're going to focus really on one period of history that is absolutely instrumental. And we're actually going to roll back the clock in part for... Many of our younger listeners uh, around the world who may not be aware of this history, and we're going to go back to 1955. And in 1955, on April 18th to, to the 24th, there was a very critical conference in Indonesia called the Bandung Conference. Now, this was at the height of the Cold War. And what you have to imagine is that the Soviets and the Americans were battling for influence in throughout much of the emerging markets throughout the developing world, what they called the third world at that time. And this Bandung Conference was critical because it brought the Africans and Asians together for the first time. So, uh, Francis, let me just start, you know, and ask you, why did you focus in on this conference as such a significant, obviously a significant event? Obviously, it was one of the first times in the Cold War that Africans and Asians got together, but it wasn't the only time that there were these global conferences. What was special about Bandung? Yeah, thank you. Uh, what was special about Bandung in the context of my uh, book what is that um, prior to Bandung, um, you have to remember two things. First, China, the, the communist China was born in 1949. So, and there was a conference uh, just prior to that which dealt with um, Afro-Asian uh, issues, but China was not part of that conference. So then Bandung came in 1955, and China was only six years old, uh, the communist China. And um, what was what is most significant is that even at that time, in 1955, the Chinese were already looking towards the Asian and African countries as a sort of... Um, uh, um, um, theater where they can grow their power but also export their evolution. There was no um, um, uh, what I would call um, facility for them to do this until Bandung came along. Yeah, but so let me, can I, if I can interrupt you, I'm very sorry. I just want to go back to one of your points about, you know, you said that China was only six years old at this time. Uh, mm. That's because the revolution was in 1949. Uh, yes. China was still in the haze of war. I mean, six years after yes. a brutal civil war. And so you yes. say that they were talking about exporting this country. It seems to me at that time in their history, they mm. were just trying to put the pieces back together in China and much less were absolutely incapable of exporting any type of revolution, especially somewhere as far away as Africa. Yes. 
uh, that would seem the case. But at that time, um, there was uh, um, another movement aside, uh, apart from the Communist Party that were already looking towards uh, other parts of Asia uh, for the simple reason that they wanted to actually, um, I mean, this sounds very cynical, but they were determined that the, the modern China uh, um, that was born in '49 was not going to limit itself towards its borders, but they actually had to expand beyond the Chinese. This was not something that was uh, policy at the time, but it was something in, in the background. And that was why when Bandung came along, it was seen as an opportunity for the Chinese to actually go there and try to make friends with mostly the Asian countries, actually. Um, and that's something also quite important. China was not really focused on Africa at the time. It was the conference was really to um, uh, to try to get some of the Asian countries that were seen to be friends with the U.S. to actually come onto China's side. But um, when, yeah. So sorry, sorry to interrupt you. The um, it was very interesting for me to see that there was also a Japanese delegation there. Um, exactly. And, exactly. Uh, you know, kind of. So how how did this kind of um, you know attempt to to get large sections of Asia, particularly colonized Asia, Southeast Asia, mm. on China's mm. side? How did that kind of operate with the, the also the presence of a Japanese delegation? Yeah, you know, I, I actually um, quite, quite um, uh, frankly, I also wondered uh, what were the Japanese doing there. And there's, and there's also another country there that I actually was a bit surprised to find on the list. And that were well, actually there are two countries and one was uh, Lebanon and the other one was, uh, was the state of Vietnam, which was actually, if you recall, that you had... Um, Vietnam was split into two. You had the Democratic Republic and then you had the state, and one was communist. So, but I think in the case of Japan, I suspect, and I'm just suspecting, that uh, this was, you know, 10 years after the end of the, uh, of the Second World War. So I think the Japanese probably were uh, non-aligned. They found themselves in a position where uh, they probably were looking for allies uh, for whatever reason so i would suspect that's why they attended that conference no uh, i think also that um you know kind of i think at that stage in japan the communist party was quite strong and there was uh, there was a lot of a lot of uh, you know kind of activism and and you know kind of yeah, attempts to yeah. kind of pull japan in different directions and i think yeah. it, that might have been you know kind of to do with that too well and you, it's interesting kobus yeah. that you bring up the the japanese communist party in mm. its participation in the bandung conference in part mm. because uh, John Foster Dulles, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, did not attend Bandung in part because no. he felt that it was too communist. And yeah. in some ways, this represents a little bit of the difficulties that the United States has had since Bandung of inserting mm. itself into Asia-Africa relations. And so China mm. comes to Bandung and mm. really sees itself as becoming the, the emerging leader of the third world. Yes. Um, and this, yeah. was the, this was the predecessor to the non-aligned movement that came along. And I, I'm yes. curious what, you know, Francis, to get your, your take mm. on, on how 
you know, how China sees itself and how the rest of the world sees China. And that's one of the discrepancies that Cobus and I focus a lot of attention on in the Sino-African mm. relation, because there does mm. seem to be a discrepancy. But yeah. from the time of Bandung, um, China did see itself as a leader of the third world, as a leader of the poor, as, a, as, as really a buffer against, you know, but remember, they were never friendly with the Soviets, and they certainly no, weren't no, friendly with, no. the, with the Americans. So no, they felt no. like they had a, a solid foundation to stand on. But tell me mm. about what you think in terms of this positioning of China as the emerging leader of the third world. Yeah. Um, um, uh, just before I do that, I would like to also pick you up on um, on uh, John Foster Dulles's position because that was a miscalculation, and I'm sure you know that the U.S. found themselves in a little bit of a quandary because uh, opposing Bandung at that time, they would seem to be supporting colonial uh, and imperialist powers, uh, but attending Bandung, they would also seem to be uh, alienating their friends. So they're actually caught in a rather difficult uh, position. Uh, officially, the U.S. did not send any, any representative, but um, um, Adam Clayton Powell, the, um, a member of Congress, attended, and he had access to the White House, and we know that he reported back to the White House uh, but we also know that he expressed concern that what the U.S. has done was to give China a sort of leadership role um, there. So back to your question. The Chinese at that time, uh, for various reasons, one uh, was that um, Chairman Mao was absolutely certain in his uh, belief that many of the countries in Asia and Africa would like to emulate the Chinese model. That is, this was a poor country that had, that had defeated imperialists. You have to remember, you know, the Boxer Revolution uh, has been used by the Chinese as uh, a good example of how colonialists uh, did not have the interest of those that they occupied. There was also um, uh, um, uh, references to various stages in the Chinese Revolution that were taking place in several African countries. So they did see themselves as not only uh, uh, a leader in the sense of galvanizing all these countries under one umbrella, but they see themselves as an ideological, uh, given ideological leadership. So they did position themselves first and foremost as a, a country that had experienced the same things uh, or the same uh, uh, challenges that the new countries were experiencing. Secondly, they also positioned themselves as a country that basically had no imperialistic interest whatsoever. And those two things, uh, or, or those two positions, actually struck a chord with a lot of the leaders uh, uh, there. And what we've seen today is that uh, uh, five of the principles that the Chinese laid out as the basis for their relationship with Africa are pretty much the same that they follow today. Um, we also see that China, uh, in its dispute with the Soviet Union, because that's also something we should not ignore, uh, um, has also largely taken over the role that, of um, leading the communist world outside 
Western Europe. That was uh, uh, one of the results that came out of Bandung was that it became uh, clear to the Chinese that they should leave the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and everything else outside, they should be the leader in what were called the intermediate areas of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Um, Francis, I'm so, sorry to interrupt you. Um, yeah. So, uh, one thing that, that that really struck me, as as you mentioned this, as that you know, kind of that China was, um, you know, was so interested in essentially becoming like the communist older brother for all of these emerging states. Um, mm. I, I, you know, as part of reading for this, I, I read the original communique of the of the Bandung conference, mm-hmm. um, and I was one thing that really surprised me was the the, the heavy um, emphasis on trade and developing yeah. economic mm. development and you know mm. kind of beneficiation of African raw raw resources. Yeah. So, kind of how how did that kind of fit into the the idea of of kind of export communism yeah um, uh, that's a very good question um, Kobos because um, um, uh, what I actually uh, brought out in my book was that uh, China faced a dilemma at the time on the well on two fronts on one front was that there was um, Bandung which was made up of um, uh, all kinds of countries. We have to remember that uh, uh, it was not only communist uh, sympathizers, left or right, uh, left countries that were in Bandung. There were also some countries where, who were towards the right. And indeed, uh, when Chu and Lai came to Bandung uh, and uh, to make his speech on the first day, he was actually booed by several countries because they denounced communism as rather dictatorial. So um, the communique that came out of Bandung emphasized trade. And the Chinese uh, essentially said, okay, we will follow that. So if you see that some of the first um, uh, missions they established in Africa were to facilitate trade. So in Egypt, for example, the embassy that they opened there was essentially to start to help the Egyptian cotton industry. and that was pretty much the same thing they did down in the east coast of Somalia. It was also for trade. Um, to answer your question, uh, which also goes back to my point about the dilemma the Chinese faced, was that they felt um, for various, well, not for various reasons, but they actually felt that they could hijack Bandung or the spirit of Bandung to essentially push their revolutionary model in some of the African countries. And that we saw gradually taking place in some areas that were experiencing uh, a fight for independence. So as I showed this in my book, one of the most interesting questions in that, at that time was whether the Chinese were actually uh, intent on uh, uh, spreading revolutions throughout Africa. Um, uh, um, the aspect of trade um, and, and other um, economic uh, activity was essentially abandoned until 1976 uh, when uh, Mao passed away. Before then, it was really um, aid, uh, and aid was used as a means to actually uh, 
um, um, get these countries to follow the Chinese uh, system of uh, um, thinking and their model. Well, let's just step back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We only have a couple of minutes left now, but... Uh, you know, putting Bandung in con- in context here, mm. you know, if you listen to the Chinese, they'll tell you about how they've been coming to Africa since the, since Zheng He in the 16th century. And, yeah. and, you know, and it's hard for people sometimes to figure out what are the key milestones in the Sino-African relationship. Uh, mm. Where do you place uh, on the on the on, on the the timeline of history uh, between China and Africa, the Bandung Conference, in terms of its importance. We know about the FOCAC summits, we know about mm-hmm. Zheng He, but where yeah. does the Bandung fit and rank in the hierarchy of important dates in Sino African relations? Um, when you say rank, you mean in terms of uh, in terms of, um, of importance? Uh, you know, let's say. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming that there's a number of undergraduates and masters who are master students who are listening to our show tonight. Yeah, exactly. wondering about okay, I need to study and I need to do a paper on this. You know, how important mm-hmm. is Bandung? Yeah, um, the question: How important is Bandung? Well. I would start off by by looking at that question from two perspectives. The first perspective, Bandung, in the context of the um, of the movement towards decolonization uh, um, and the uh, the beginning of the Cold War, and then specifically to your question about the Chinese Sino-African relations, in terms of the importance of Bandung in the decolonization. Uh, uh, issue. There is actually, oops, sorry. There is actually quite a debate as to the importance of Bandung. Uh, there are some cynics who basically said that, yeah, it was just a nice gathering of it. Nothing really came out of it because the United States didn't pay any attention to it. Um, there, there are supporters who would argue that Bandung was probably the start of what, uh, uh, yeah, well, it led to the non-aligned movement, uh, for example. Specifically in terms of China-African relations, I would argue, and of course others can argue otherwise, that prior to Bandung, there was no official Chinese policy towards Africa. There was a policy towards Asia, and that was essentially um, a policy of countering the the United States um, towards Taiwan and uh, get because the United States was bent on isolating China in Asia. So they had a policy. When after Bandung, the Asian policy was extended to the African countries, but. What we saw was that uh, 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 there was a change because in Asia there was a conciliatory approach, whereas in Africa it, there was a much more uh, aggressive approach, and that was because of the dispute with the Soviet Union. So uh, in conclusion, I would say that Bandung was a, a watershed event in formulating, in formulating a policy uh, by the Communist Party towards the African countries that basically address two key issues. One is how are we going to build ourselves a broad alliance in order to counter the United States? And secondly, how are we going to uh, obtain the supremacy within the communist world in order to, uh, to rival the Soviet Union? 
So, so, so that would be my my, okay. my answer. Well, mm. the the book is China and Africa Love Affair. It uh, it's mm. available on Amazon in both a Kindle edition as well as in a uh, printed edition. It's only a hundred and eight pages, so uh, it's going to be a rather quick read. But uh, it sounds absolutely <laughs> fascinating. You know, sometimes you know these academics they write these books that are like six hundred pages and we can't read them. But uh, <laughs> this is a hundred and eight pages, so I, I really recommend any any lazy undergraduate who wants to actually you know do a quick read. <laughs> To get ahead. Uh, I think that's a good way to get started. Uh, one of the things, we, one of the things we do at the end of every show is we want to mm. kind of drive people to uh, how they can follow and what you're doing. Uh, what's the best way mm. for people to stay in touch with you? Uh, we have a Facebook page <clears throat> which is called the China and Africa Love Love Affair. Uh, it's uh, it's a Facebook page which um, um, you know people give comments about the. Um, uh, uh, what they've read uh, on the uh, on the book. I also have a website which is called China and Africa Love Affair dot com, uh, which would also be a, um, a sort of discussion forum. But you know, people are free to. Uh, I think the best one would be on the Facebook page, and I must admit, on your project, the China Africa project, because I think that's actually quite a, a, a very resourceful. Website. A lot of the things I covered in my book are actually covered on a contemporary basis on on your project page. Well, thank you and for I, the plug. Yeah, yeah, and I would be actually contributing with an historical perspective on that. And if I can just add two things, Eric, um, uh, if I have time on the book, uh, it's I also did a canvas on Facebook, so I, I interviewed some Africans, and their opinion there uh, essentially. Uh, uh, vindicated why it was necessary to write such a book. Um, uh, added to that is that on the BBC there's currently running um, a program called Missing History. And Missing History is about the relationship between China and Japan. And what I emphasize in my book that if we uh, Africans do not know the history between China and Africa, we would have a lot of misconception about what's going on. And the BBC program is essentially dealing with that. Yeah. Essentially dealing with with that. So it's I a, so I think um, you know um, I'm very glad I have this podcast with you because um, uh, history is very important to how we address contemporary issues. No, absolutely, mm. and uh, I highly recommend the uh, Missing History program on the BBC. Cobus, uh, yes. uh, if people want to uh, follow what you're doing and what you're thinking, reading and writing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch with you? Um, I update daily, or I try to update daily on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and you'll see my name there when I comment. And also, um, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And Kobus and I together uh, keep up the Facebook page uh, going almost 18 hours a day with posts uh, all about China-Africa relations, so we encourage you to check that out. If you'd like to follow this podcast, the easiest way, of course, is over in the iTunes store. Just search for China Africa Project and we'll come up there. Uh, but you can also follow us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. Uh, if you've got a mobile app, uh, Android or iOS, look for us in the respective stores. Uh, we're there as well. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.